You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Revelation chapter 7. We're in that interlude between the 6th and the 7th seal being broken in heaven. And we've been looking at the, uh, the vision of God's salvation of his people. Last week we saw specifically um, how God had sealed uh, his people intentionally before bringing judgment upon the earth. There was an intentional protection that was applied to God's people uh, before he would bring judgment upon the earth. We talked about the 144,000 and um, what that uh, possibly means through a symbolic number of, of fullness and completion and perfection. Um, We saw God withholding that judgment at the beginning of chapter 7 with the four angels uh, scattered around the earth and um, then withholding that judgment until everyone is sealed, um, which just gives us that encouragement that good spiritual forces are um, basically working against evil forces for God's purposes, and they are succeeding in those efforts. We talked about how the 144,000 could or could not be Uh, In reference to Jewish people, I told you that I think that it lends itself to including all of God's people, specifically because it calls them God's servants, and we see that title applied to all believers in Revelation chapter 2, chapter 19, chapter 22. We see them being identified as people who are redeemed, uh, which is also something that's a concept for all believers. Uh, We see them being given the uh, seal that we know is applied to all believers uh, regarding the Holy Spirit. Uh, We've seen, again, some uh, passages in the New Testament that reference the church and Israel being united together. Um, And so, ultimately, uh, seeing the sealing and protection, not just applying to Jewish people, but applying to all of God's people, I believe. Um, But then we talked a little bit about, and as an application point, how we as individual Christians have a responsibility to work out that sealing, basically, that as being saved Christians, we don't simply... Uh, sit back passively and do nothing, that there's a a responsibility on our part to work out our salvation. And so I challenged you last week to think through uh, some of the ramifications of that for your individual life. Brings us now to the middle of chapter 7, and we want to wrap up chapter 7 today, talking about the multitude in heaven that are participating in what we would call paradise restored. Uh, that basically Jesus comes and fixes everything and a multitude of his creation gets to participate in that environment. And so um, if you're following along with us, you can follow along with notes uh, in our Google Drive. I encourage you to uh, pull those up if you want to or to reference those later. But we'll begin reading in Revelation chapter 7 and in verse 9 it says, And after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall, no, they shall hunger no more. 
neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It's interesting as you look at this chapter, you you see a very Gentile type approach, I think, to seeing the people of God. You see people from every tribe, nation, and tongue But what we're going to find that's so interesting, I think, to me in understanding Jew, Gentile coming together is that while John gets this vision of a heavy Gentile population in heaven, the things that he talks about them enjoying are prophecies that are given specifically to Israel. Jewish people promise certain things in the Old Testament about their restoration that we now see being enjoyed by Gentiles. And so I think, again, it's a nod to the idea that we're talking about a shepherd who comes to shepherd one sheep. In our discussion groups this morning, you read through John chapter 10. Hopefully you picked up on that part of what he communicated to the Jewish people, that he is a shepherd of a sheepfold where he has sheep from other folds that he is bringing into that fold, uniting them under one shepherd, one sheep, one shepherd. Um, And we're going to see that once again this morning as we see Gentiles enjoying things that were originally thought to be for Jewish people only, but now they have been brought into that sheepfold as well. So we look at the multitude of paradise restored this morning here in Revelation chapter 7. Our summary sentence for this morning, both for our adults and for our kids. Believers are encouraged to remain faithful during times of suffering now, realizing that God's plan of salvation will be fulfilled with people from everywhere enjoying the restored state of paradise for eternity. Believers are encouraged to remain faithful during times of suffering now, realizing that God's plan of salvation will be fulfilled with people from everywhere enjoying the restored state of paradise for eternity. So we suffer now knowing that for eternity we will not. For kids, even though times get tough now, Christians can be encouraged that everything will be perfect in the future. As you're writing down some of that, I I found it interesting in studying that there's these two uh, heavenly throne room scenes where worship is taking place. We discussed this morning in our groups, Revelation chapter 5, Revelation chapter 7, a throne room scene where creatures are giving worship to, to God and to the Lamb and so we've already preached extensively on the worship scene. So why, why is it necessary to then come back to this scene? Why does Jesus feel it necessary through the Holy Spirit revealing these things to John to have John write about something that we've, we've extensively covered previously from chapter 5? And I think the main big difference that we see here is the focal point in both of these visions. In Revelation chapter 5, the focal point is, is really clearly on Jesus as God and, and all that, that God and Jesus represent and the Holy Spirit through the Trinity and them deserving the worship that they receive. The focus shifts, I think, in Revelation chapter 7. They're still receiving all the worship and all the glory, but the, the focal point of the text, the interaction of the text, really draws our attention to who are the people worshiping in heaven. So Revelation chapter 5, it's all about who are we worshiping in heaven. Revelation chapter 7, it's all about who is worshiping the Lamb in heaven. And so I think both are necessary because one gives us this glorious picture of the Lamb that we're called to worship, 
And then Revelation chapter 7 gives us this glorious encouragement that we're the ones that are there worshiping the Lamb in heaven. So I think that's why we have both throne room scenes. One, to draw our attention to the one that we worship. The other, to draw our attention to who it is that is there worshiping. Because here we see a multitude. Previously in chapter 5, it's the created things in heaven that are doing the worshiping. Revelation chapter 7, we get the glimpse of the people that are there. And it's a group of people that we cannot count. Okay, Um, The scene here in Revelation chapter 7 ultimately answers that question that we've been trying to answer from chapter 6. Who stands when Jesus comes to judge? And what we find here in chapter 7 is that so many do. right? So many do stand in the presence of Jesus. And it's because of their salvation that they are enabled to stand. All right. The scene also shifts from earth to heaven to focus on the multitude that cannot be counted. So earlier in chapter 7 with the sealing, we're talking about judgment on earth. We're talking about believers on earth that are being sealed and protected from coming judgment. Chapter 7, 9 through 17 is a picture of heaven and the people of God enjoying his presence there. The scene also pictures those who have experienced death but have found eternal life in their death which to me reminds us that the ceiling applied to God's people does not ensure us from death, right? That these people are coming out of the tribulation. These are dead saints that are now worshiping in heaven. They have experienced death. So while they are sealed, they are not protected from physical death. Um, But that's okay because in their death, they are finding their ultimate victory. This scene also anticipates what we find at the end of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 21, Verse 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. We also see the anticipation of Revelation chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever." These are two glorious scenes that we'll see later in Revelation that are anticipated in what we're reading about here in Revelation chapter 7. The end of all things, the gathering of all of God's people for the eternal worship of his glory. Um, Let's get right into our text and to our notes this morning. Number one, the salvation of mankind will extend to all peoples. The salvation of mankind will extend to all peoples. For our kids, Jesus is going to save people from everywhere. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. This is the gathering of people from everywhere. Salvation of mankind will extend to all 
peoples. Ultimately, going back to our study in Genesis, this is the reversal of what occurred at Babel, right? The last time that we see every person on earth unified in a common purpose is at the Tower of Babel as they begin to construct this tower to show their desire to assert God's authority, right? And God steps in and limits their ability to do so and scatters them across the earth by changing their languages. This is the last time that we've seen such a unified approach by mankind with a common purpose. And now we get a glimpse in heaven of people from all tribes, nations, and tongues that had previously been dispersed because they they, in their best abilities to come together in a unified uh, form, were against God. Now we see the culmination of salvation where God has rescued people from all these tribes, nations, and tongues that he had to previously disperse. Now he's brought them back together for a common purpose, their created purpose, to give worship and glory to him. And so this is the reversal of what we studied about in Genesis. And I told you, we're going to see this throughout Revelation, God fixing things that we saw at the beginning of Genesis that go awry, God fixing things time and time again and bringing them back to their created purpose. And he does so here by saving people from all of these different backgrounds. First of all, we see that God's salvation knows no limits. God's salvation knows no limits. The total number of people that will be saved will blow our minds according to this chapter. According to this scene here, it's such a great multitude, it cannot be numbered by the human mind. I think this is important because it reminds us as believers how many there are of us and how alone we are not. Sometimes we can fall prey to the idea of just seeing ourselves in this little pocket of the world and maybe around us seeing Christianity and and it not being what we see lived out in Scripture. And so sometimes wondering how many of us are there really out there that that really love Jesus and really want to follow his word and don't just name him on social media and then live differently throughout the week. This is a reminder that we're not alone, that we're not by ourselves, and that there's a great multitude that will be counted on that day. This should be an encouragement to us as believers there are a great many of us that are out there. It probably includes all of God's people from all time and not just those from a seven-year type tribulation. Um, The numbers are staggering here. Now, again, two different approaches to Revelation. Some would see this great tribulation that's referenced. If you skip down to where the elder and the uh, elder and John are talking about who are these people, the, the elder responds and says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. So many would look at this passage and say, this is a select group of people that get saved during the seven years of tribulation when the Antichrist is, is running rampant on the earth. It's very hard for me to fit a multitude that can't be numbered into that level of thinking because those that believe in a seven-year tribulation also believe that the Holy Spirit is not here on this earth, that it's an extremely difficult time to get saved, that those who really love Jesus were raptured away, and so all of a sudden you're going to have a multitude that can't be numbered get saved during the hardest time to get saved, according to them, on this planet. It's hard for me to wrap my mind around how that plays itself out without the Holy Spirit here to bring people to salvation when it's supposed to be a heavily Jewish-focused time. Because again, remember, the reason the rapture theory even birthed itself was around the idea that God keeps Gentiles and Jews separate in his eternal purposes, right? 
one shepherd, two folds is really the approach with that view. Okay, so this is supposed to be a time when Jewish people are getting saved by the, by the masses, but what this seems to tell us is that the Gentiles are in a group that can't be numbered that come out of this great tribulation. I think this is in reference to people of all time coming through tribulation, especially those who come through a great tribulation. Now, I don't want to minimize the fact that Scripture emphasizes there is a time that when compared to other times, it's far greater in terms of persecution. Daniel chapter 7, and maybe we'll, we'll go through Daniel at some point after completing Revelation because there's a lot of end-time prophecy there. Um, actually, number uh, Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12 um, alludes to a great time of persecution in the future that's unlike others. Um, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. There shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. So there's this great time in the future, unlike any other time, um, time of trouble. God's people will still be preserved in it, but it highlights this future time of great trouble. Matthew chapter 24, verse 21, also references a future time that doesn't compare to other times. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. If those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So great time of persecution that's supposed to come in the future. Great tribulation time. Um, and these people that are here in Revelation chapter 7 are certainly grouped into this group that are, that are going to go through that, okay? But I think it's including people from all time, from all tribulations as well. Um, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 through 40, take some time to read that because it talks about people in the Old Testament and some of the persecutions that they endured for their faith. And it would be, you'd be hard-pressed to tell them they're not included in this group because they go through some really difficult stuff. Um, people being killed in, in creative ways to simply make it harder on them in their death. Um, and so I think this is an encouragement to the believers of God, especially to these churches that are reading this initially, that as persecution intensifies, as tribulation intensifies, there is hope on the other side of it. Um, this is certainly a reminder that at some point the martyred number will be complete. Remember Jesus says, Um, that it's not yet time for his return until those that are supposed to be killed are filled up. This is certainly the time when that has occurred. This is also, I think, an encouragement to us that those that are in heaven, this number that can't be be numbered, this multitude that can't be counted, they have suffered great, and I think it removes any opportunity for us to exercise self-pity. We aren't the only ones that have gone through difficult times, and we certainly don't have times that we've gone through that can even compare to some of the things that people will have gone through that join us here in this scene. Remember Elijah when he kind of claimed the card of self-pity when he says, I'm the only one who hasn't given myself to false gods. And God shows up and reminds him, he says, I've got 7,000 other people that are doing what you're doing, that that are being faithful and that that are still loving me and that haven't given their hearts to idols. This, again, is a reminder to us we're not by ourselves. We're not the only ones suffering. And in comparison to this great time that doesn't compare to any other time that we may not even go through, um, we certainly don't have any grounds for self-pity about the things that we've had to experience. God's salvation knows no limits. He is going to save so many people that can't be counted. Number two, God's salvation knows no boundaries. 
no boundaries. Um, as the people are described here in heaven, they come from everywhere, every nation, every tribe, every people group, every language. They're all standing before the throne and before the Lamb. There are no boundaries known in God's salvation. There is no person who will be excluded based on background. No person who will be excluded based on background. In Romans chapter 10, what we find here is that the dilemma that's proposed here has been fulfilled because the gospel has gone forth and people have heard and responded. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, we're, we're informed again about how the gospel works. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And so Paul reminds us that the gospel will go forth. The gospel is available to all who hear it, who respond in belief to the message of the gospel, that Jesus has come, Jesus has died, and Jesus has risen again. That message goes forth. People respond in faith to that, and they can be saved. And they can only be saved. They can only respond to that message if that message goes forth. It's the message that Jesus gave to his disciples when leaving this earth to go and make disciples of all nations. What we're seeing here in Revelation 7 is that God's people responded and God's people took the message around the world and people responded to that message and were saved from every background. No boundaries. No one's excluded. It fulfills the promises made to Abraham in Genesis that we talked about, right? Genesis chapter 12 Genesis 16, Genesis 17, Genesis 32, these are all chapters where promises were made to Abraham. Promises like, you will be a blessing to all nations, right? That, the, that Jesus, the Messiah, would come through Abraham, and Abraham would be a blessing to all nations because Jesus would come through his line, and Jesus would save people from all nations. And that's certainly true here. We also know that uh, Abraham was promised to be a father of many nations, that his, his offspring would outnumber the sands of the seashore and the stars in the sky. This is the fulfillment of what we studied in Genesis, right? That, that God has kept his promise, that the Messiah who came through the line of Abraham has allowed Abraham to be the father of many nations. Remember, we've referenced in the New Testament where the authors tell us, if you're a believer, then you have the rightful claim to call Abraham your spiritual father. And so if you're saved, Abraham is your father, we're learning here that people can call salvation true to them from all nation, tribe, and tongue. So all these people, all these nations claim Abraham as their father. And the great number is greater than the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. It's a number that can't be counted. God keeps his promises. He knows no boundaries. The gospel message will be successful, which validates all of our missional efforts, right? It validates us sending people from this culture to other cultures to preach the gospel because we are told that it will be effective. Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, Jesus promises the effectiveness of it. Before he comes back, he says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, 
and then the end will come. Everyone's uh, excuse is removed as the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. No limits, no boundaries. Number three, no distinctions. God's salvation knows no distinctions. You don't see in Revelation chapter 7 a pecking order of those who are more saved versus those who are less saved. There's no distinctions being made here as to who is in this group worshiping, right? They're all standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They're all clothed in white robes. They all have palm branches in their hands, and they're all getting to join in on the same song and claim the same things about God for themselves. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. There's no distinctions being made here. Everybody's in God's presence. They're all clothed in white. This is a promise that God made, uh, or Jesus made in Revelation chapter 3, verse 4 and 5. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. They will walk with me in white, for for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. I'll never blot his name out of the book of life. God's keeping his promises here. He's distributing white robes to these individuals who have been saved, who don't have to worry about their names being blotted out of a book. They've been preserved for all eternity. Draws attention to the fact that it's uh, Jesus who ultimately saves us. It's he who, uh, his blood has enabled us to be saved. Um, Isaiah chapter one, verse 18, an Old Testament passage that references it says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. The forgiveness is offered to us. Um, it allows us to stand perfectly before God, that perfect righteousness of Christ that we're now clothed in. First John chapter 1, verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So there's no distinctions here. When we talk about salvation, we talk about being in heaven for eternity. No distinctions being made. Everybody gets in the same way. Everybody gets to enjoy these same privileges. Number four, not only is there no limit, no boundary, no distinction, but there's also no threat to God's salvation. There's no threat to God's salvation. As we continue to work through Revelation, we will see that the enemies will mount against the church and the deception will increase And there will be such a desire to see the church and believers killed and extinguished, turned from their faith to God and love for instead the beast, the Antichrist, the great dragon. But what we find is that in their greatest efforts to stop the church, there is no real threat. When there's discussion about the identity, who are these people? These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. The greatest efforts of the enemy cannot succeed because a multitude that cannot be numbered comes out of the tribulation and remains faithful to the Lamb. No threat. Number five, no self-glory. No self-glory. Who who gets to ultimately enjoy this? People that have been saved, but they are specifically described as those that have washed their robes and made them white white in the blood of the lamb. Now, previously in Revelation, we've seen white robes being given out, right? Just gifted to people. Here, 
John writes in such a way that reminds us that there is a personal responsibility here of washing your robes as white in the blood of the Lamb. And I think that's important because it reminds us that there is a participation by us as we turn to Christ in faith, right? Like we have to respond. Now, that, 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 even that ability to respond is a gift of, of God through the Holy Spirit where he changes our desires and renews our understanding, enlightens us. Right? We call that, um, uh, John Piper does a great job of describing this process in his book, Finally Awake. Um, it's just a, not finally alive, where we come awake. Yeah, there we go. Um, it, it's this regeneration where the Holy Spirit enlightens us and opens our mind to spiritual things that, um, that we've been blinded to. But there's this personal response, right, that the thief on the cross has to confess things. He turns to faith in Christ for his salvation. It's after he responds in faith that Jesus says, you'll be with me in paradise. So there's this idea of us washing our, ourselves, washing our robes in the blood of the lamb. But I think what's so important here is that the cleansing element of this salvation is Jesus's blood and not their own. These people don't get saved because they died for Jesus. They're not washing their robes in their own blood even though many of them will shed their own blood for the lamb. These people are going to be persecuted for their faith. We may fall into a group of people that die one day because we name the name of Christ. But we will not be in heaven because we were willing to die for Jesus. We don't get into heaven by the shedding of our blood. It's his blood that was shed for us that washes us white as snow. So don't think for a second that these people get to enjoy these privileges because they were willing to die for Jesus and that their blood in some way gives them entrance to the kingdom. It's his blood that washes our garments white as snow. There's no self-glory here in our salvation. God gets all the glory. Everyone present has a clean robe based on the lamb's blood. We see the lamb's blood being emphasized all throughout Revelation, one that we haven't got to yet, Revelation chapter 12. Verse 11, they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Here we see the two being joined together. How do we know that we put our faith and trust in the blood of the lamb? That we're willing to sacrifice our own blood. That we're willing to trust him so much that if he leads us into death, we will not waver in our faith. No self-glory. Everyone present is giving glory to Jesus. Man, I look forward to the day when I can turn to somebody and somebody can say I'm a Christian and they, they worship Jesus. Because that's what you get here in this scene is that everybody is as serious as the person next to them about Jesus and his glory. You don't have to worry about being in the fellowship of people claiming to be Christians and you're trying to figure out why are, we, why, why are you doing what you're doing then? Right? Like all that's removed finally. Everyone present here is giving glory to Jesus. There's no question about the seriousness of one's faith. Everyone's on the same page. Man, I look forward to that day. Look forward to that way when I can turn to somebody and know that they desire to serve him as much as I do. And I look forward to the day where my desires are far greater than they are right now. But I look forward to the day where we're all on the same page and we all love Jesus equally and we all want to give him glory equally and we're all saying no to sin because sin has been removed and it's no longer a temptation. What a beautiful picture of God rescuing his people and uniting us to one purpose. The main point here, I think, of this section, there is unity amongst God's people 
as we will all suffer as a result of salvation, but we will all worship forever before the throne. So there's unity that's described here. God's bringing together a group of people that have all suffered as a result of their salvation. And there will be different degrees and levels of suffering, but we are reminded that we will all worship forever before the throne. For our kids, all Christians will worship Jesus together one day. Unity. God rescuing people from everywhere for one purpose, one goal. To unite them in worship for him. So we see that being pictured as all these people before the throne of God, clothed in white robes, palm branches, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. It's, just, it's not just us that have been saved from our sin that are worshiping. Remember, the, the Bible talks about angels rejoicing when people get saved. It talks about angels looking on in, in great curiosity about the gospel and its unfoldings. And so the angels are worshiping, not because they've been saved in the same way we have. They're just simply worshiping God and glorying in God as he's telling this story before them. And they get to see the unfolding of this story. And they give great credit and due to him for what he has accomplished. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? It's a, it's a question meant to cause John to ask it if John wasn't asking it, right? Here's the correct question to be asking, John. Remember, we've talked about when you come to Revelation, it's got answers for us if we ask the right questions. Here, the elder tells John, here's the right question to be asking, John. Who are these people? Who are these people that are standing here? John basically says, I don't know, by saying, you're the one that would have the answer. And he says to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes, made them white in the blood of the lamb. That brings us to verse 15. It says, therefore, they are before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They'll hunger no more, thirst no more. Sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So number two, the restoration of creation will remove all sinful effects. So the salvation of mankind will extend to all peoples and the restoration of creation will remove all sinful effects. For our kids, Jesus will fix everything affected by sin. As these people are washed in the, the blood of Jesus, they're before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. First thing I want us to see here is that when God restores creation and removes the sinful effects, he also removes the toil. Specifically, I think the toil of work. It says that at this time, we will serve him day and night in his temple. At this point, I think labor stops being hard once again because I can't think of anything right now that I would want to do day and night, right? I can't think of anything that would bring me great joy to do it day and night. But here we are told that we will be restored to a state where serving God is something that we do day and night Theoretically, if there was a day and night, because we'll learn later in Revelation, there's not really a night. There's not really a day. We don't think in those terms anymore in the future. 
But if there were such a day and night, we would be serving Jesus day and night. I think there's great joy in the service that we'll be brought to. I think there's great purpose in our work once again. My belief is that we will be doing things that we enjoy doing, that we are good at, that we are interested in, all for the sake of his glory. Think about it right now. Right now we work, and and work is good, but think about it. Work was given to mankind before sin, right? Adam and Eve had things to do before sin ever entered into the world. It's after sin entered into the world that work became hard, that work became uh, undesirable because of its, its, its hardness that the land and, and, and whatnot would reject our desire to work. But for, for most of us, we work to prevent hunger and thirst, right? Like we work to make sure that the bills are paid, that we can feed ourselves and take care of ourselves and provide shelter for ourselves. But what we see in this chapter is all these things are provided for us. So we're not working to provide these things for us. God's providing these things for us. We are working for the simple joy of working. We are serving for the simple joy of serving. Hunger's removed. Thirst is removed. The scorching heat of the sun has been removed. We just get to serve him day and night in his temple because it's, it's good and it's the right thing to do and it's a joyous thing to do and it's a fulfilling thing to do. It's what we were created to do. So for a lot of us, we pick jobs right now out of necessity, things that will pay the bills. Some of us are blessed to do jobs that we thoroughly enjoy doing, but even on the best days of doing those jobs, we still experience hardness to that labor, right? I love the job that God has given me to do at Trinity. I love being, ex- being able to exercise the gifts and abilities that he's given to me in that setting. But on the best day, of working at Trinity, I come home tired from working. I come home tired from working against sinful kids and sinful teachers and trying to bring everybody onto the same page of learning and striving to learn for the glory of God. Best day, I still come home tired from working against the sinful effects of work. That stops on this day. When we are united together, we get to go back to serving and working without the sinful labor, without the sinful effects of labor. Number two, the removal of danger. The removal of danger. God spreads his protective presence over us. It says, he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Now, this is extremely important It's extremely important to understanding the Jewish people and the Gentile people coming together because this is reserved for Jewish people, but it's being applied to people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. God's presence sheltering his people. That's something for Jewish people that's promised in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel chapter 37, remember God's people uh, had been banished at different times into different types of captivities because of their sin, And there was always hope and promise of restoration, coming back to the land, coming back under his care, being restored to their previous positions. In Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 24, my servant David, talking about the Messiah, talking about that that longing for the day when the Messiah would come and sit on the throne and be everything that every king of Israel had not yet been, My servant David shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd and they shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. 
They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel, when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. This is a promise for Israel that God's presence would be with his people, protecting them, sheltering them. And God is now applying it not just to the Jewish people, but to all people who come in faith, all people who wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Here we're told it's meant to draw the nations to, uh, to Israel and to their God, But we see the reversal in the New Testament where it's actually the nations who are drawing Israel to their God. A promise made for Israel that's now being applied to the Gentiles. Revelation chapter 21 verse 3, we get that glimpse in the future. Again, a separate scene that's highlighting the same things. Revelation 21 3, heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. The Old Testament hopes of Israel's joyous restoration is fulfilled in the salvation of multitudes, Christian multitudes from all nations. It's cool to see how the progressive revelation of God's plan gives us more and more detail as we work through it to see a better understanding of how he plans to work. It says in verse 16, they shall hunger no more, thirst will be removed. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. Number three, the removal of harmful effects. Hunger, thirst, and heat are all quenched here. They're all removed. In John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus makes a similar promise. For those that would come to him, he says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This too is applied to Israel in the Old Testament, promises that were made to them that are now being extended to Gentiles as well. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 8. This is specifically promises to Israel about their restoration after their time in Babylon. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out, to those who, have, to those who are in darkness appear. They shall feed along the ways, on all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. I will make all my mountains a road, and my highway shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. This is is supposed to be for Israel. This is a promise made to Israel. And the same language is now being applied here in Revelation to not just Israel, but people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. No more hunger, no more thirst, no more sun that's scorching you with the heat. 
Our C group spent the day at the lake yesterday. Great time on the lake. Swimming, playing on the boat, jumping off the dock, fishing. But every so, long, every so often you have to stop and everybody has to put suntan lotion on, right? The scorching heat has harmful effects. And so as much as it's a joy to be outside, we still have to be cautious of the elements. Here we're reminded that there's coming a day when the sun's scorching heat will be removed. Ultimate shelter will be provided. No more hunger, no more thirst. Again, going back to the idea, some of us have worked hard to prevent hunger and thirst, but we have to work hard to prevent those things. Some of us have faced those things when jobs have been lost, and we know really what it looks like to have to wonder, is hunger and thirst going to come because I don't have the money to pay? All those things being removed, no more threat of it, no more worry about it. And we see all through Revelation that hunger and thirst and exposure to these type of elements, they're prevalent for God's people. Revelation 13 and Revelation 16 talk about the hunger and thirst. Exposure to the sun is talked about in Revelation chapter 16. But even Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 about his own experiences. As God's great church planting missionary, he is not exempt right now from hunger and thirst in his life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 11. To the present hour, we, Paul, his team, hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed. We're buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. This is one of God's greatest human beings at that time. Sealed to the day of redemption, who's hungry and thirsty and looking for clothes. For, for God to assure us that hunger and thirst and the scorching heat will be removed assumes that many of us will experience those things. For it to be something that we look forward to being removed, it means that we probably experience them now. Second Corinthians chapter 11, Paul goes on, talk about his experiences. So again, don't think that just because you're sealed, that just because you're saved, it doesn't mean that you don't lose your job. It doesn't mean that there's not times of hungering and thirsting and wondering and worrying. The great hope and the great encouragement is that there's coming a day where you will not have to deal with those things again. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. In toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, talking about his ministerial experiences. All these things will be removed one day. Number four, the removal of confusion. The removal of confusion, Jesus comes upon the scene and serves as our great shepherd. He becomes the leader of our hearts and souls in a physical form, fulfilling all of our greatest longings. Psalm 23 is a great chapter that that talks about Uh, the Lord being our shepherd and how he guides us, protects us, leads us to the fulfillments that we long for. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, a messianic prophecy promise about Jesus coming in Bethlehem. But you, O O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who was in labor is given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. 
He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. That promise of Jesus coming to be our shepherd, which means we don't have to wander around anymore in confusion. All that's removed, the questioning and the wondering. What are we supposed to do? What decisions are we supposed to make? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25. Not that he doesn't function as our shepherd now, but how much greater will it be when we stand in his presence? It says, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus functions in that capacity for us. Our shepherd shows a great value to us. That John chapter 10 chapter, we've already read through it, so we're not going to take time to do it right now, but I wanted to hit some points and have you understand the context of what I'm talking about. In that passage, Jesus promises to come to get us, right? Like he's the one who seeks us out. He comes to that fold to, to rescue us. It talks about him dying for us, that he's not a hired hand that runs and panics when the sheep are threatened for fear of his own life. He's the shepherd who owns us and loves us and lays down his life for us. He's the greatest shepherd possible. He unites other sheepfolds into one sheep. He shows great care for us in the way that he leads his sheep to pasture. The removal of all confusion, Jesus is our shepherd. And then number five, the removal of sorrow. The reasons for tears are removed. He wipes away those tears. Again, a promise that was given to Israel in Isaiah chapter 25 is now applied to Gentiles. Verse eight, he will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Again, in the context, a passage that's given to the people of God. At that time, primarily the Israelites. In the New Testament, promises given to the people of God. Based on sheer numbers, people that are primarily not Israelites, maybe. People that come from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Main point here, the removal of these items means we should currently expect to experience these items but should remain encouraged that they will soon come to an end. We should expect to have difficult days of working. There's toil and, and difficulty in our labor. We should expect to experience danger at times. Harmful elements of hungering and thirsting and battling the elements of the sun. Confusion at times as to not knowing where to go. Sorrow, death, suffering and pain that oftentimes causes us to cry. We experience those things now, and it gives us great hope that we will not have to experience them forever. For our kids, sin may affect us now, but not forever. Which brings us to the application point that I want to make, um, kind of going back to that idea of people claiming Christ now, but oftentimes not living as though they worship him, and, and looking forward to that day when we stand with a great multitude that worship and love Jesus equally. The application, if we plan to worship Jesus on that final day, praising him for his salvation and his sealing protection, then it demands we worship him today through our daily obedience and faith, showing that we believe his eternal reward is better than today's fleeting pleasures. And the idea behind this as I was writing this is that 
And if, if, if we see ourselves in this group, right, when we read this chapter, and I hope that all of us have made an expression of faith that would cause us to read this chapter and see us there on that day, worshiping Jesus and praising him for his salvation from sin, praising him for his sealing protective work that kept us saved until that day. Man, how much more should we be worshiping and praising him today and showing that in the way that we live our lives? Right? It doesn't make any sense to yield ourselves to sin, but plan to praise him for salvation one day. It doesn't make any sense to yield ourselves. So to me, when we leave today and we go through this week and we're tempted to do all kinds of sins, that we get this glimpse of ourselves in a multitude of people one day worshiping Jesus and that it give us the resolve to fight for that today. Let's worship him today if we plan to worship him then. Right? Let's say no to sin today so that we can rejoice in the removal of sin on that day. Let's don't glory in sin and yield ourselves to sin and claim to be a Christ follower because we think we'll be doing it on that day. Let's make that day a reality today. Let's, let's love him deeply. Let's worship him with all that we have. Let's, let's trust and believe his promises that are tied to his commands. Let's seek to live in faithfulness this week because we see ourselves in this multitude, that we group ourselves in this multitude. Our family worship questions for this week that are, that are tied to this. Number one, what are you looking forward to most when eternity begins? We spent some time talking with our kids this week about things that um, we look forward to as believers that won't be, the, that won't be around when Jesus comes back? What are some things that we look forward to most when eternity begins? And then number two, what do you plan to do this week to actively worship Jesus? It's what we're going to be doing for eternity and not just singing, but serving him, right? Like it's not just, don't think in concepts of worship, simply us singing songs with a group of people. It says that we serve him day and night. There's an active work that we're doing. What are we going to actively do this week that would constitute us serving him today. If we're going to do it for eternity, let's start doing it now. What do we plan to do this week to actively worship Jesus? Let's pray together. God, we come to you and, and we praise you and we thank you. And those words uh, are not even appropriate enough to express the gratitude that we want to have for the salvation that you've given to us. Lord, we know that if it weren't for you, we would certainly give ourselves to any and every deception that comes our way. That if it weren't for you and your love for the elect, the great deception would certainly eat every one of us up and we would yield ourselves to the things of this world. Father, we praise you and thank you that you have sealed us with the Holy Spirit, that you have guarded and protected us to ensure our salvation. And Father, we're thankful that you give us a glimpse of the future where we are standing with so many others. So many others who have gone through similar things that we've gone through, many that will have gone through things greater than we've gone through. And that we will all stand together and worship you for your salvation. And God, we look forward to the day where you've restored things to their rightful place and position and purpose, that we'll be able to work for you and to do it out of a state of joy that makes us want to do it all day long, all night long. That you're going to remove threats of danger that, that we experience. 
that you're going to protect us forever with your presence, that you're going to remove the, the harmful elements of this world that would cause hunger and thirst and scorching heat to come upon us, that the threats of those things will be removed forever, that we'll be able to enjoy a state where there is no sorrow, there is no crying, that you will ultimately be our shepherd who, who watches over us and guides us for eternity. We thank you that, that we, see, we see those realities even now as we dwell on this earth. But God, we know that when we see you face to face, we will be able to experience these things on a much deeper level than we've ever experienced them. But God, I pray that as we wait upon you, as we look forward to these days that come in the future, that we would not squander the days that are upon us now. Father, I pray that you would, through your Holy Spirit, working out salvation that is in us, allow us to be the type of people this week that take a stand for you and the different places that you will take us, that, um, that we will be faithful to your commands, demonstrating our trust in you and your promises that you've made by yielding ourselves in obedience. God, we want to worship you today as much as we can, like we will do for eternity. God, give us wisdom in knowing how to use our week this week actively to worship you, to show your great value and worth to those around us. Help us to be creative in our scheduling this week, to not be consumed with ourselves and our own interests and our own family desires, but that we would instead seek to glory in you by serving others. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.